And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Kurt Streeter. Kurt Streeter is a reporter at the Los Angeles Times, where he has been a feature writer, covered transportation and crime, and written a column for the sports section. His most recent honor came in 2013 when he received a Best Feature Writing Award from the California Newspaper Publishers Association for a series chronicling life inside a hospice for hardened prisoners. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Kurt Streeter. Thanks, everybody. You can all hear me, I take it? All right. I appreciate, we appreciate you uh, showing up tonight, um, and thanks to all of our panelists. Uh, I'm just going to roll through this pretty quickly. First of all, first thing to know, uh, I'm not an education reporter, okay? So I'm not an absolute expert in, in the subject matter that we're going to be uh, talking about today. But I think that the reason that I'm here is, uh, well, sort of twofold. I wrote a story. Uh, late last year about a kid uh, from South LA who went to uh, Cal, and I followed him through his first year at Cal. It's a kid by the name of uh, Kayshawn Campbell. And I followed his struggles. This is a kid who was a salutatorian of his class at Jefferson High, a young black kid. Uh, great, great, great kid with amazing drive. Um, but I showed how um, up at Cal, he ends up extremely isolated, uh, extremely uh, uh, just doubting himself in ways that he had never doubted himself before, and he almost, he almost flunks out. In the end, we see that he barely ekes by and makes it through his freshman year. So that sort of kind of put me on Zocalo's radar, somebody that, that uh, wrote and cared about this issue deeply. Um, secondly, uh, I have a personal uh, uh, interest in this, in this because I went to Cal in uh, the late 1980s. Uh, and I graduated in 1989, and this was a time when uh, particularly uh, black and Latino, uh, the black and Latino population on the campus was, you know, significantly larger than it is right now. We stood at about uh, eight, I believe, eight to 10% of the population, and right now we're at about 3% uh, on the University of California Berkeley campus. So, uh, so I know this subject pretty, pretty well from a personal level. So that's why I'm here, but I'm going to really lean on, my, on the experts today to take us through this, this, in, this whole issue. Um, and, uh, and then at the end, we're going to open this up for about, I think, 15 minutes or so of, uh, of questions from you all. Um, to start off with, I mean, I, rather, than, you know, I, rather than sort of bore you with the statistics and all that, you all know that, that just in general, the number of uh, particular Latino and black students on these campuses, on particularly the uh, UC system campuses, and, the, and, and particularly among those, the elite campuses have dwindled greatly since Proposition 209 and, and, and the affirmative action. So we all know that. We don't need to go through the numbers uh, and the percentages. But if we could have, Michelle, if, if you could frame sort of where we're at right now and, and kind of what are the sort of key issues in, in your mind? Um. I'd, I'll, I'll try my best. So, so I'm with the Campaign for College Opportunity, and we've uh, released a series of reports on the state of higher education in California, one focused on Latinos and what are their educational attainment rates, one focused on blacks, and then folks asked us, well, can you also look at gender? Because we know there's differences for Latino men and black men versus um, their counterparts. And I would say... Um, that there maybe wasn't a whole lot to be surprised in the reports. The numbers are dismal, they're not good. Um, 
But yet, I think a lot of us who are in this space still feel really surprised by the numbers because we see that there's persistent gaps, right? You think that as we make progress, as more folks have opportunity, that we're going to be uh, growing in numbers. And certainly in terms of raw numbers, there are more Latinos than ever graduating from high school and going to college, and that's something to totally celebrate. Yet when they, get, they, when they go to college, they mostly choose to go to community college, and they mostly never complete or earn an associate degree or transfer or go to a four-year university. And for African-Americans in our state, I think it's really disturbing to see that, you know, California is home to the fifth largest African-American population in the nation. We have more blacks in California than Mississippi and Alabama and states that I think we would be surprised to know we have more blacks in California. And yet, you know, we're, we're very persistent in the number, still too few going to college and completing college. So a lot of um, challenges. I think when we talk about inclusivity in higher education and we don't talk about community colleges, we aren't having a full conversation. And I suspect we're going to focus our conversation on UC, and I'm a Bruin, so I care about what happens at UCLA as well, but um, the reality is that unless we do something about ensuring that more students who go to community college actually transfer and get a degree and go to a four-year university, then we're having a partial conversation on the issue of diversity in higher education. Can I, can I add here so, something interesting in, in all of this talk of, you know, there's plenty of, there's all the, all the downside and all the, all the things that we're talking. There are some actually interestingly positive, some positive things that are going on, particularly, um, you know, uh, the, on, on the economic front in terms of class in, uh, at the UC system. Is it, I was told that, is it 50% of UC students uh, are, are attending school basically for free because they, they come from low-income households? Um, and so that's a big boost. There's been an increase in the emphasis on, on household economics um, throughout system-wide. And I believe at Cal, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Cal has uh, right, the Pell Grants, which are used as sort of the marker for um, household poverty in, uh, among, as they're counting college students. Cal, ha Cal has more uh, students uh, who have Pell Grants than all of the Ivy League schools combined. So this is one way that, after Proposition 209, that uh, one thing that's sort of positive, and Richard, you write and think a lot about economics class uh, and, and diversity at the college level. What are you seeing? What's interesting to you right now? Yeah. Well, I think California in some ways is kind of the mirror opposite of the rest of the country. Uh, in, in, in the rest of the country, there's a big emphasis on racial and ethnic diversity. And so race and ethnicity count significantly in who gets in. Um, and the numbers are not where we would want them to be, but there's, there's a, a healthy degree of racial and ethnic diversity at selective colleges. Um, by contrast, there's almost no economic diversity. So at the nation's most selective 150 colleges, rich kids outnumber poor kids by about 25 to 1. Okay, so universities uh, say that they care about both economic and racial diversity, but they would much rather have a racially diverse picture. You know, to their credit, I'm glad they care about racial diversity, but they're much more concerned about appearances. And economic diversity, which is something that's uh, less 
um, visible to the naked eye is, is almost completely ignored. The reason I say California is kind of the opposite of that is that because of the ban on the use of race in admissions, uh, UC Berkeley, UCLA, and the other uh, selective colleges, to their credit, have begun aggressively pursuing economically disadvantaged kids of all races. And so you have these Pell numbers that are really quite significant at UC Berkeley and, and UCLA. Uh, and we, we'd like to see the, the racial numbers increase, and we can talk some about, uh, about ways to do that. Okay. Yolanda, you're at UCLA. And by the way, did, did you all get, um, uh, earlier on, do you have descriptions of who, who all of our panelists are? Do I need to go over it? Okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm no pro at moderating, but uh, okay. <laughs> Um, let me just start over. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This was Richard Collenberg, okay? Uh, Richard Collenberg is a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. He's been called the intellectual father of the economic integration movement wow. uh, in K-12 schooling and arguably the nation's chief proponent of class-based affirmative action in higher education admissions. Uh, Michelle, Michelle Siqueiros. Michelle grew up in Los Angeles and was the first in her family to graduate from college. She grew up also in Echo Park, went to Logan Elementary near the school that my wife taught at for years, Placencia Elementary. Um, so it's great to see somebody from the neighborhood doing great. Uh, she's the executive director of, for the campaign for College Opportunity, and sh which works to expand access and success in college for California students. Um, so great, great work there. And Yolanda Copeland Morgan, and I'm going to ask you a question next. Right. Okay, so get ready. Uh, Yolanda uh, was appointed Associate Vice Chancellor for Enrollment Management, Enrollment Management at UCLA in February of, of 2012. She's responsible for achieving UCLA's undergraduate enrollment goals and oversees the office, offices of undergraduate admissions and financial aid. So in UCLA, I mean, being in LA, we've all heard the stories about UCLA. Um, we were, you know. The, 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 the bad stories, but there's a lot of good going on on, on campus. And I, what I mean by the bad is particularly, was it 1990 or 2006, actually, yes. when there were how many black freshmen yes. on the campus? Just about 96. 96 black freshmen <laughs> admitted to the, yeah, came to the UCLA campus in, in 2006. But now um, you're in charge of turning all that around. Uh, <laughs> what, what, one, of the, one of the things that's re really interesting, we were talking about sort of, uh, Richard mentioned uh, uh, diversity and um, sort of the, the face of it and how schools are, are promote that or uh, um, sort of almost market it, if I, if I got you right there. Um, this video that, these, that the kids from UCLA did, a young kid mm -hmm. by the name of Cy Stokes and several other uh, students uh, did a, an amazing video, spoken word video, talking about what it's like to be uh, particularly a black male on the UCLA campus. How has that then gone over on the campus? And what are you, how are you addressing all of these issues? And I know that's a big right, question. Right. No, no, I appreciate the opportunity. And thank, thank you all for being here. Uh, you know, there, there is a lot, there are a lot of good things happening um, at, at UCLA. And I think uh, across the country, um, and it doesn't take away from the trends that we see and the disturbing numbers that we all agree are far too low and, and totally unacceptable. I think the, the video, uh, the black spoken word, video that was uh, put together by a gentleman by the name of Cy Stokes and some of his um, classmates on campus um, was uh, 
first of all, it's just an incredible piece of work that these students did. They, yeah. they, you agree. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That It went viral. It went viral. 1.7 uh, million hits and, and growing. And these young men had no idea that they would ignite a conversation nationally and internationally. And it's a conversation that has been ongoing. Certainly it's happening at UCLA. It's happening across the country. But they have put an exclamation point. Uh, on this conversation. And I think they really tell a story that is not only UCLA's story, uh, but it's black men across the nation, their story. It's Latino men, it's, it's, it's underrepresentation, the feelings of isolation and alienation. And, and, and that's a powerful story. And we have been working with these young men, uh, one, to, to validate and to say that um, we appreciate the creative way in which they have ignited this conversation and we've done everything we can to support them and uh, and they are they are wonderful they will go off and do great things in, in their community and they have really joined with us to um, to 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 elevate this conversation and begin to address to once again and there are these these moments I think in in all of our uh, lives where we have an opportunity to reinvigorate the conversation and to recommit to uh, making a difference. I think one of the biggest challenges in higher education surrounding the issue of um, being inclusive is that we have to be vigilant daily, not simply responding to these incidents that occur, but we have to have a plan that focuses on the issue, that puts money toward the issue, um, and, and we know it's going to take resources, right, to, let, let to do me, these things. Okay, so, so far, we're all cheerleading for change, right? right? Okay. Well, let me, uh, let me put on another hat and not cheerlead for change. Let me, let me say, um, you know, um, I'm Ward Connerly. Right? Um, uh, okay. You're wrong. Let me. Right. Okay. Well, <laughs> tell me why I'm wrong. Why does this? Why? Why does it matter? Why does? Why should race matter? I mean, I can see a lot of people. I mean, I have friends who who believe this. Or, you know, um, I can easily understand why people would say this. Uh, I'm a journalist. I can understand both sides. Right? I'm not taking one side here. But why does race matter on campus? Why shouldn't it just be a pure meritocracy? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and just let the chips fall where they may. I'll, I'll, I'll start the conversation. But one, one, you have to start with the definition of meritocracy, right? So that could keep us occupied for, for the evening. But the, but, the, but the bigger issue is that uh, context matters in higher education. Um, it, it, and, and race is a part of that context to ask students to, or, or, or professionals to somehow separate a student's identity a major identity um, for you as individuals or for our students away from their educational context um, uh, doesn't give us a complete picture. And so one of the things that, that you hear a lot about is the change that the University of California, uh, many of our campuses made to holistic admission. Um, you know, outside of... What is, what is holistic admission? Holistic admissions, admissions yeah. means that yeah. we are, when we are evaluating a student, um, a student's application for admission, we are looking at how well did they take advantage of the educational opportunities available to them. So you're not just how looking far? at grades and we're, SATs? We're, we're, not, we're looking at grades, we're looking at SATs, we're looking at their essays, their experience, their leadership, intellectual curiosity. We're looking for evidence of ability to succeed, and we're looking, of, looking for evidence of achievement. 
within their own educational context. And that is extremely important because we know that educational opportunities are not equal across well, our communities and okay. across our state. Well, so, I'd yeah, like go, to say right. that I think it, it matters because look at California. Mm -hmm. Next month, Latinos will become the largest ethnic minority in the state. Our state is diverse. It matters because we want to live in a state that has a lot of economic opportunity. And the more educated our population is, then it matters to all of us. Whether you're Latino or white or black, you should care that our young people are getting a good education because as we get old and we retire, and I see Dell Myers who wrote a book called Baby Boomers here from USC. Um, he knows this, this better than me, but you know, this isn't just about you know, opportunity and race and Latinos and blacks having a shot. It's about our collective future. We wanna live in a California that has um, you know, a lot of social capital and opportunity and, and where we don't fear for what happens when we walk out in the street. And we all know that if folks are educated, they have less likelihood of ending up in prison. We're gonna spend less on social services and welfare for them. All of that is an investment. And so we keep talking about, you know, we can have a conversation about just sending more Latinos and blacks to college and hoping that they get through, but our collective future is tied on whether we do or we don't. Let me, yeah, let yeah, me yeah, just say, yeah. I agree with um, what, what is everything that's been said so far. Uh, I, I would add this though. Right now, if you look at what, if you're trying to uh, have an admission system that's fair, that looks at not only how well someone has done, but also what obstacles she's had to overcome. Um, there's research from Georgetown University that suggests today those obstacles are primarily economic in nature. So the most economically disadvantaged student is expected to score 396 points lower on the math and verbal portions of the SAT than the most economically advantaged. All races. All races. Uh, and then the ra there is a racial gap as well, which is, is much smaller, about 56 points. So the, the question is, you know, if a, if a student comes from a single parent family in a distressed neighborhood, uh, parents didn't go to, uh, parent didn't go to college, uh, and manages to do quite well despite all of that, then there's something really special there that we want to try to capture. And if we have a fair, genuinely fair admissions process, then the racial, ethnic, and economic diversity uh, ought to flow naturally from a fair process. Um, right now, though, universities heavily weight race and ethnicity. Uh, your chances of, this is not in California, obviously, California is banned, banned from doing that. Not in Texas. But nationally, right. There's a big emphasis on race, so your chances of getting in increase by 29 percentage points if you are African-American or Latino. So you're, let's say you have a 10% chance of getting in. If you're African-American or Latino, then you know, add 29 points to that, so you're 39% chance of getting in. So that counts as a, as a significant factor. Income counts not at all, uh, according to William Bowen and his research. So there, there's a mismatch between what uh, the obstacles are today and what universities 
okay. uh, nationally are counting. Okay. Uh, California is different, though. You know, yeah. one of the things, so I, I think, so this is a complex conversation, <laughs> and, and when people bring up mismatch, I, the, the, the mismatch that I'm mostly concerned about is the fact that even when um, students from underrepresented background graduate at the top of their graduating class, they are not, they are less likely than any of their other counterparts to go to four-year institutions and less likely to go to selective institutions. So the biggest mismatch that we have is an undermatch, that we are seeing too many of California's bright and talented um, underrepresented students, and I'm not just speaking of low income, but underrepresented students starting their college careers at community college, and only 25% of those students who started at community college actually end up with a four-year degree. So, so that- Just to be clear, when I used the word mismatch, I wasn't talking in, no, the, in the technical but it, term. But, it gives yeah. it, but, but I think the reason I, I, I followed up on that is because that's the story mm -hmm. that the public doesn't know. Is that our nation's most talented students, here in California, our most talented students disproportionately minority students mm -hmm. are starting their college careers at community college. And there is a direct correlation between admission standards and graduation rates. And so those, when you look at the institutions that have the highest graduation rates of all students, including minority students, and UCLA is right there. We're getting ready to post an 80, over 80% 80 graduation rate for minority males mm -hmm. at UCLA. That's like in the top 10% within the nation. But there is a correlation there because there are like-minded students together, like-minded both in terms of their academic ability and in terms of their commitment to um, well, to, yeah. to getting there. I'd degree. say, I mean, from my experience, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've been a student. Not, you know, well, not that long, but okay. <laughs> but being being with uh, Keishan for a year, and I, so as part of the story where I followed Keishan for, you know, throughout his freshman year, I basically just went up to Cal six, seven times, hung out with him, and uh, um, up there um, got to know all of his friends. Uh, you know, went to his social events. Uh, the, the thing that really struck me about, about, about him, although he was very unprepared in his, through his K through 12 education, but he and the other kids there have an amazing amount of grit. And, and I mean, I, that's, all, that's the word that I came away with, grit, just thinking about these kids. And that's, once they get in, you know, he has a, he has a high GPA, once he got in, I think the grid is going to make it, he's going to make it through, even for all of his deficits, he's going to make it through, I think. Uh, the other kids, dude, they're just amazingly resilient and gritty and tough, and you've got to be in order to make it at these schools. Maybe that's, well, I don't know, maybe that Ward Connerly would say that's a, that's a good thing. Maybe that's what he wanted, right? I mean, that, you know, well, you got to have, you have to pull yourself up by the bull, bull, you know, bootstraps type thing. I'm not sure. I'm not going to be Ward Connerly anymore for the rest of this conversation. <laughs> but um, what about, and, and to, if you, uh, the, uh, I'm really interested in the experience of, that these kids are having on campus, too. Um, that, uh, the sense of isolation that uh, hopefully my story you know, uh, portrayed, and that the sense that I felt from these kids' fear, um, uh, worrying about um, you know, feeling like they weren't accepted on campus. And at Cal, the sense was that as the population has dwindled there, 3% now, um, uh, and it's also like the athletes are you know, kind of here, and then there's the other black students, and they're just that much smaller of a group. And they're just on a little island 
and I, it, was, it was incredibly sort of devastating for me to come back you know, 20 years later and see the, the, the sense of, of, of isolation. Could you talk to me a bit about what, what, do, you, what do you guys sense? And then we'll, we'll get to the UCLA and, and Cy Stokes and all. that sense. How, how important is changing that? That sense. And well, I think colleges and, and, well too. yeah, I think colleges and universities um, should be held accountable to serve our students, right? I think sometimes there's excuse making. Well, we, you know, affirmative action is banned in California, so that's why our numbers are low, or well, those students come in unprepared, and so that's why they don't complete. Almost as if you know they sometimes don't own the responsibility they have as institutions to provide an environment that's welcoming. Right? I, I was the first in my family to go to college, and when I showed up at the Claremont Colleges, which isn't very far from here, felt like I had left and arrived at a different planet. Um, and most of the students that I went to college with were very wealthy, um, but I thought they were super poor because they dressed like hippies and, <laughs> and wore Birkenstocks. And, you know, I had to put on makeup before I left the, you know, the dorm, um, and there weren't a lot, a lot of students like me but there was a Chicano Studies Center that came and talked to my mom on a welcoming night to let her know that it was okay that I was gonna live at Pitzer and not at home, even though she was only 30 minutes away. And, and there is a, uh, a need for, maybe folks call it hand-holding, but when you're, you've never experienced that world, yeah, we need a little bit of hand-holding. Who's doing it well? <sighs> Richard you, you, well? Richard, you have a real broad I mean, I think, uh, national perspective. Yeah. I think uh, you know, there's something called the Posse Foundation, which uh, has been bringing groups of students, uh, low-income and minority students, who come in as a cohort, and, and they provide support for one another. So I think uh, and, and, and the, some of the Claremont colleges, I know, are in, involved in um, supporting that program. So that's... That's one thing. I, can I pick up on one thing, yeah, though, yeah, yeah. Michelle said? The, 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 um, the, I, I think it is important to say that the universities, even though they're banned from using race, um, should not be excused for the low numbers of minority students. Uh, there are things that you can do to raise racial and ethnic diversity indirectly uh, by looking at economic status. And to give you one example, um, there is an enormous uh, wealth gap in this country, be particularly between African Americans and whites, but also between Latinos and Anglos. Um, so by wealth, I mean your, your net worth, what you've accumulated uh, uh, over time. There's an income gap in this country, which is bad enough, but the wealth gap is much larger. And it reflects our history of slavery and segregation because wealth is handed, uh, handed down over generations. So. UCLA, UC Berkeley, they could be looking at wealth uh, and, and getting a, a uh, positive racial result um, from looking at that kind of a factor. And I, I would uh, urge them to do more in, in that regard. So I've got to respond to this. Um, the fact is, so we, we all understand that economic diversity um, will bring more ethnic diversity, it will bring more um, gender diversity, in fact. However, if we look at the experience of the University of California, despite the implementation of holistic admissions, uh -huh. Uh -huh. despite where, where 
um, uh, uh, SES status matters, where the kind of high school you go to in terms of low performing or high performing school uh, matters, um, where we've uh, where we invest a significant amount of time and effort in research uh, and, and, and outreach and research to try and address these issues. The fact is, if you look at the University of California system today, our numbers of underrepresented minority students, African-American, Latino, Native American students, are nowhere near what they were pre-209. And, and I'll go back to my earlier statement. Context matters. This is what the Fisher versus Texas case is about. It's about context. It's about, it, we're not interested, when we, when we talk about the fact that we value diversity, we value diversity within diversity. It's not that we want all low-income Latino students at our campuses and all low-income African-Americans. That does a disservice, talking about isolation and mm -hmm. alienation. That's a different type of isolation and yeah. alienation, right? But I also wanted to mention, so, so I, I go back, race matters. And, and it's not that I disagree, but I'm saying it's not enough. If you look at what's happened over the last decade and enrolling minority students, we're just not moving fast enough, as you pointed out, well, given the diversity of the state. Funding, right? I mean, the University of California, you know, admits the top 12 percent. You know, we haven't had a conversation around is that the right percentage we should be admitting to the University of California? Should the state expand entrance into the University of California to 15, 20 percent? Um, you know, the Cal so State can you system. That? Can you explain that? So, you know, and, we, and then we have requirements, right? Please. So the University of California accepts the top 12% yeah. of students in, in the state. Yeah, just so people know. The top third yeah. to the California State University system. And you have to have completed a set of requirements, courses A through G is what they're called. And only a third of Latino and black students in California even complete the A through G courses. And I just want to say it isn't because Latino and black students don't want to complete the A through G courses. The A through G courses are not the default curriculum in every single school in the state of California. So we always talk about sort of the achievement gap. I like to talk about the opportunity gap. Did you get to go to a high school where somebody tracked you into the A through G classes? Guess what? I did. You know, but not everybody does. Did you get to go to a high school that offers 10 AP courses so that you can even be eligible to get into UCLA? You know, when I went to UCLA 15, 20 years ago, um, I wouldn't have gotten in today with my GPA or my grades. I, you know, I think we don't talk about how we continue to raise the bar. We talk about how students aren't meeting the bar. Mm -hmm. Let me pick up okay. on this question of whether economic diversity can translate into racial diversity. You're absolutely right. In California, it hasn't. Uh, nationally, we looked at seven, we looked at 10 leading universities that were banned from using race. And they adopted a number of programs which I think are very important, you know, socioeconomic affirmative action. A lot of them got rid of legacy preferences. These are the, to my mind, completely unjustified preferences for the children of alumni, the you know, affirmative action for the rich, essentially. Um, they got rid of that. Do they, those still exist, by the way, in, in the UC system? Legacy? Not in the UC system. No. Throughout, not officially. Not officially, this, no. Right. Um, no. But, uh, okay. but so in, in seven of the ten cases, they were able to get 
as much African-American and Latino representation uh, as they had using race in the past. So elsewhere it's been successful. Texas, Florida, some other places. Now why isn't, uh, why hasn't Berkeley and UCLA been, why haven't they been successful? Uh, well one reason is that you all are so selective. Uh, and so UCLA is competing against Stanford, it's competing against uh, University of Virginia, lots of select, you know, there's a national pool of applicants. And uh, right now, UCLA and Berkeley are facing an unfair level of competition in trying to get highly talented African-American and Latino students. Mm -hmm. Because if you get into UCLA without a, any sort of preference, you're probably also getting into Yale with a preference. Uh, so how is UCLA supposed to respond? I mean, that's a, that's a very tough position to be in. But you know, if you go back to, you mentioned Bowen and Bach's work right. in The Shape of the River. Some of you may be familiar with that book. Well, wait, and, what is that? I'm not a... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Bowen and Bach, two, two very um, outstanding educators and college presidents, wrote a book called The Shape of the River. Okay. And in that, they looked at um, the experience of selective higher education, selective institutions across the country as it related to race-neutral policies. And, one is, and, and they looked at the student's experience and the impact of enrolling. Uh, what, first of all, what would happen if they, they administered race-neutral policies and they uh, looked at what has occurred with race as one factor in admission. In that work, they state that enrollment amongst selective institutions for African-American and Latino students would have dropped 50 to 70%. And in the same book, they point out the, the enormously um, exciting careers that these individuals have and the impact, the return on that investment to the communities, to the state, and to the nation. Now, these weren't students who were unqualified. And by the way, we don't admit students, at any of my colleagues, it don't, we don't admit students who are not prepared to do the work at our institution. We're talking about students who may be marginally slightly different than our average student. And, um, and, and so I want to, you know, dispel that myth too. These are students who are prepared to succeed at our institution. They're just prepared at different levels. And, and there's, there's always that, you know, it, it doesn't matter who you admit, you're going to have different levels of preparedness. And, and, and one of the things I just wanted to mention in terms of models of success is there are a lot of programs like Posse at UCLA. We have a program called VIPS that enjoys a 90% uh, graduation rate that starts in our high schools and graduates. There are other models of success. Right. We've got to be consistent in our effort of addressing these then issues. Still, you, when, you, when you're getting these kids on, on the campus, you're getting this an environment, though, like Cy Stokes talks about, for all of the success mm -hmm. of these programs, and that I heard over and over at Cal, I mean, um, there's probably a lot of USC people here today, I would imagine. Right, at least a couple, all right? Okay. So this is something that I never would have heard in, you know, in, 19, in the late 80s when I went to Cal hearing... Um, hearing people, uh, hearing young black students saying, at Cal, saying, man, I wish I'd gone to USC. <laughs> okay, now it hurts me to say that, but, but this is what, this is because there was a sense, because again, that sense of isolation, fear, and they would hear from their, from their uh, 
high school classmates who are at, at SC, where it's like I think that the population is about 10 percent. So this is just what I'm. This was the, this yeah. was a feeling that yeah. I was picking up. And Stanford, I, or I wish I'd gone to Columbia. Why did I come here? I, I mean, not. I can't say that every kid, but I'm hearing. You know, these are things. In the, but the USC comment really struck me. So we have to be. <laughs> we have to be. We have to be very careful and understand that the reason that there was such a huge response to the video is because it's every black male's experience on predominantly white and Asian campuses. And, and, and you, Latino, you talk Latino to USC well. students, and I see my USC folks in the, in, uh, up there nodding. You talk to the African-American males on their campuses. They're saying the same thing. It, it, the numbers are small. Regard, in, in selective higher education, the numbers are very small. And so what we've got to focus on is how do we improve their experience? And the way that we improve that experience is not only addressing their specific needs and creating environments that are inclusive, but we've got to address the small number of students that are coming through the pipeline. Okay. We've got to look at the shape of the river. One last question, and then I think we're just about done. We'll uh, open it up for questions uh, from the audience. But uh, now, uh, Michelle, you referred to this sort of the, you know, uh, K through 12, K through 12. and. Uh, what can K through 12 do to, one thing when we talked uh, earlier in the week, you talked about college campuses and high schools being better in having a better sort of communication and collaboration, uh, high schools and, and even and beyond. I mean, pre-K, this stuff starts in pre-K. Yeah. What, well, I, I, don't was, know, I was just sharing with you that everybody points fingers, right? Yeah. Like the middle school is like, God, that elementary school didn't do a good job. The high school is like, they didn't send the kids prepared. The college is like, oh my God, the high school did a terrible job. And the high schools are thinking, well, you trained our, our teachers. <laughs> Right. I, so, so everybody does this. Nobody like talks to each other. And I was just sharing with Kurt the other. You know, the other thing is that you know our high schools, for the most part, do not have as a core uh, expectation that they need to prepare their students for college. So why are we shocked that only a third of students get the A through G curriculum? Why are we shocked that so few end up going to college or are prepared for college or succeed once they get to college? And then we don't fund with that expectation either. So we don't tell our universities that they should be working with the high schools to make sure that the students come in prepared to take college level work. Yeah. We don't fund our colleges to actually complete students. We fund them based on enrollment and at community college based on the third week of you sitting in that class that community college gets its appropriation for the course. R Richard, you're in DC and you fly all over, all over the country. Do you have a perspective on that, like K through 12? Yeah. And the Absolutely, so I, I wrote a book on affirmative action in 1996 and college admissions. And the very next thing, as I you know, was digesting the debates and everything, very next thing I did was to, to begin researching on K through 12 because that's, you know, if we got equal opportunity right at the K through 12 level, What's your uh, one takeaway from that? That, that our, our schools are economically and racially segregated, that that has a profound impact, uh, that if you, and particularly on African-American and Latino students, that, uh, that that's kind of been lost. There was, yeah. uh, you know, compulsory busing in the 1970s. That didn't work politically, and so people just said, well, we'll do our best to make separate but equal work, and that's been a big failure. We have to find ways, you know, low-income kids who get to go to middle-class schools are two years ahead 
of low-income kids who are stuck in high-poverty schools. So we have to find ways through choice uh, within the public school system, I'm not for private school vouchers, but within the public school system to give more uh, incentives for the schools to be economically and racially integrated. Yolanda, uh, probably this is, are we just about, when, what's your take on the K through 12 and what can K through 12, separate from, from the universities or, or maybe this yeah. is not separate as you're talking about these programs that are dipping into the communities. And, but. So the partnership is critical and, and someone mentioned that, you know, the, the achievement or the opportunity gap really begins when you look at who has access to pre-K and then it filters all the way through. So we, we know that. But it, when you're looking for models of success, I think when I think about the work that we're, we're doing at UCLA, our early academic outreach program um, works with 800, so approximately seven 800 students um, in the high schools. And we really need to go down to middle school and you know, even have baby colleges, if you will. Um, but, but working in the high schools, and then we, middle school increasingly important because there's certain subjects, if you don't get the right math in uh, eighth grade, then you can pretty much project what your opportunities are gonna be for college. So, so that's been a part of, that's been a part of the maintenance plan though, mm -hmm. right? So, so we're reaching out and the, the numbers that you're seeing of uh, low-income students, first-generation students, underrepresented students are a result of these efforts already being in place right. during outreach in, in high school. And again, if we keep doing the same thing, we're gonna get the same results. So yes, there, it's a part of the solution, but we've got to look at uh, more drastic, bolder plans to really address the situation. And particularly, as you said, the diversity of California um, demands that we do so. Good, well, I think that's better. Can I add just one thing? Because I feel like I, 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 I put down my own institution far too much today. <laughs> but uh, uh, Berkeley means a lot to me. But you know, the one, one thing in the, you're talking about the, you know, the, this sense of fear that, uh, you know, trepidation that the students have there. I'd, I would say, and it sounds like you're doing this a lot at UCLA, there are a lot of really fantastic wraparound programs and a lot of services available for those kids once they get on the campus. It's so, it, it's sort of, and then that actually almost makes it a little bit more sad because there, there are these services for them at these schools, maybe not at, at all the schools, and yet to, to hear to hear this sense, you know, the, the study centers, the, yeah. Right. I was, I was them, pretty right? impressed, right, yeah. So, but enough of us. Uh, my name's Julian. Uh, I'm a UC retiree. I worked with UC for 17 years at UCLA and UC San Francisco. I'm also a graduate of Berkeley. I went there from 74 through 78. I was in law school and business school, and I was there during the days of affirmative action. We call ourselves special admits. I know how 209 killed us, and what I worked at at UC was in the budget area. So I tend to see things in terms of money as opposed to other things, although these other things are important. Knowing what budgetary constraints are, has there been a I, I left in 2006 in the University of California. Has there been a material rise in out-of-state students? I imagine they do it for the money because of the $27,000 out-of-state tuition. Yes, there are more um, UC students from out-of-state. What the UC will tell you, which is not inaccurate, is that they are still serving as many Californians as they've always served, um, but they are serving more out-of-state students because those out-of-state students pay full cost. Um, and they use those resources to fund courses and other things that they want. 
Um, I think the other thing to remember is that you know less and less of the uh, budget from the University of California comes from the state. You know, a couple years ago, for the first time ever, students paid more than the state of California did for their education. Um, so I, again, the conversation around funding is important. Um, how willing are we now in 2014 to talk about investing more money to send more students to college so we can have a more educated workforce? The, the only thing I'd add is that the community colleges are, are the, the most underfunded of all. So, uh, you know, in the K through 12 system, we have a principle that suggests that if a, if a school has large numbers of low-income kids, then they ought to get more state aid because these kids deserve more, not less. Uh, in the uh, higher education area, we flip that and we devote the least resources to the community colleges which are educating the kids with the greatest needs. And that makes very little yeah. sense to me. My name is Jocelyn Blanco. I actually come from a private university, Woodbury University. Uh, and uh, our, our main focus seems to be right now international students, bringing international students because of obviously funding issues and things like that. But um, I wanted to see if you also have information regarding uh, retaining students, underrepresented students, because I know right now we've been mainly talking about getting students admitted um, and looking at K through 12 in order to get them to that point. Um, but are there any re um, retention models that you've seen that have been really beneficial for these underrepresented students? I think there are a number of retention models, and that's why I mentioned the VIPS program. And on our campus, we have um, AAP program which is another academic preparatory um, uh, program that focuses, gives intrusive academic support to um, counseling to first generation students. And, um, and, and they enjoy uh, a graduation rate just over 90% as, as well. I think the, the challenge is, and this is why I said we have to do more, we have models that are successful. The funding issue is a big issue for public institutions, from the community college to CSU and the University of California system. So we've got to address that. You know it's a problem. You passed a proposition that um, restored some of the funding, but most of our institutions, at least at the UC, we're operating at um, still, still, still with about 40 to 50% less than we had um, pre this, this, this economic condition. But um, it, you, you bring up a good point. It's not enough to get students in the door. We have to graduate them. And, and one of the reasons that I focus on graduation rates in my comments, because it's important to let the public know that these students are graduating. You know, if we're looking at students that we think got some you know, undeserved, you know, preference in the admissions process and that these are students who are unqualified, and in fact, as you know, in the University of California system, there's no preference, but even in nationally in private institutions where the, the admissions policies are not race neutral, when you look at the outcomes, these students are graduating. They're graduating from our institution at high numbers, higher than the, the average number. And well so, higher, right? well higher. I mean, it, it just, um, you know, again, when you're looking at 80 to 85% graduation rates, depending on whether you're looking at all African Americans, Latino numbers are right up there. Latino students are doing uh, very well. But again, there's a correlation between graduation rates and academic standards. And you can throw funding in the mix there. And 
And uh, one of my concerns, again, is this undermatch where we have our most talented first-generation underrepresented students going into, um, too many going into for-profit institutions, particularly mm -hmm. in, the, in the, um, the issue for African-Americans. Too mm -hmm. many are going into for-profit institutions, graduating with high debt and not getting a degree. Uh, too many students, uh, talented students, are going to community colleges and not transferring successfully. So you're absolutely right that uh, we have to focus on not just the front end, but we have to focus on getting them in, getting them through, and graduating them on the other end. Hi, my name is Gary Gordon. I'm a writer and political activist. Uh, I very much appreciated the discussion of class and economics-based diversity as well as the racial diversity. But I'm wondering, it sounded almost as if the approach is to accept 209 is here to stay. And I'm wondering if, uh, if that's the case. Should 209 be accepted as here to stay, or should it be uh, an effort be made to be reversed? And then along with that, what should we be saying to uh, our elected officials at the school board level, at the state legislative level, at the governor's level, what should we be saying about policy changes, necessary policy changes, as well as funding? I would say we shouldn't accept anything as here to stay. So, you know, what I'd like to see in my, if I were queen for the day, I would ask Governor Brown to put together a plan for higher education that articulates how many Californians we need to send to college, how many by race, and how we're going to close the gaps that exist. And I think if we looked at the data and we set some goals, you know, Texas is not a progressive state by most measures, and yet they have a really progressive closing the gaps initiative that does articulate how many more Hispanics, that's their term that they use, uh, African-Americans, um, they want to have go to college, and they have it articulated for every single community college and university in their state. So I think they've been very explicit about saying the future of Texas is diverse and we want to make sure that, you know, the college going rates and the college graduate rates are also diverse. But, it, I but think it's, can I mention you this? Go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it's important for you to know, specific to his question, that there is currently an effort within the California State Legislature to put um, on uh, uh, to, to pass a bill that would put before the California voters the opportunity to repeal Proposition 209 as it relates to education and public higher education. So, so that has already passed the Senate. Um, it, I think it's anticipated to come out of the um, out, out of the uh, legislature and come before the voters. Um, and and it, it specifically looks at um, repealing uh, Proposition 209 as it relates to education. But I, I think I the said, overall trend yeah. with the Supreme Court is, yeah. is not, yeah. is other, runs completely counter to that. It's in totally the other direction. Yeah. Um, let me raise two liberal concerns about reversing 209. One is if race is allowed to be used again at uh, selective colleges, what will happen to all these programs that are now focusing on economic status? That is to say, if colleges can go back to recruiting uh, upper middle class students of color and calling it a day, uh, is that really progress? Uh, number two, the big beneficiaries of 
uh, in terms of raw numbers uh, of the ban on using race were not white students, it was Asian students. And women. And women. And, and this is, you know, so this is a complication. It's, I, I'm not saying that there's a, uh, you know, that, that that's the definitive um, consideration here. But it's, we're moving beyond the old paradigm where kind of a racist whites are, are going to pay something. This is, this is a more complicated reality. And that's, we have to think about the implications of a steep decline in Asian admissions um, as different than a, a decline in white admission. Hi, my name is Elena Astillero. So I'm with the Hispanic Scholarship Fund. And one of the things we see at the Hispanic Scholarship Fund is that students are stopped from, admi from admissions even trying to go to college and university because they don't think they're, they can afford the universities and because they don't think they're going to get accepted. So like Harvard doesn't even get as many Latinos as it would like even applying. Um, what have you seen is effective to break through those walls and really empower the communities to go ahead? One intervention which has had a lot of success, they send a, a uh, information to high-scoring, low-income and minority students who are not now applying to selective colleges uh, and they've, they've had some considerable success in getting them to apply. They have to make sure that the information is available, that there's lots of financial aid at certain institutions uh, and that the, you know, the, the application fees will be waived for these students. Um, but the intervention costs $6 per pupil. Uh, and, and it's been quite successful. So I think we need to pursue that issue. Yeah. I, I'm going to contradict myself. I'm going to say Harvard is not the answer. Um, you know, if we're only thinking about the students that are going to elite universities, we're never going to get to the kind of numbers that I think we all hope to get at. So I think the, this issue of undermatching is absolutely an important issue and it should be addressed. Um, and then I'm going to contradict myself because Harvard did produce a study that talked about the summer melt, which is what high schools could do is actually move their counseling um, staff to stay on in the summer to support students when they apply and when they've been admitted because what happens is that students then don't show up. So the high school doesn't think that you're their student anymore because you've already graduated. The college doesn't think you're their student yet because you haven't shown up to sign up and, and move in. Um, and so it's that period of time where a student who has no one in their family that's ever gone to college needs a little bit of hand-holding. And so the idea of like moving counseling staff, I think, is, is really innovative. But I just want to just stress that, you know, if we're only focused on the kids that go to UC or eligible to UC um, or Harvard or Yale, we are never going to solve this problem. Can I, can I interject there, too, just quickly? And we'll go, uh, counseling, my kid Keishon from the story, he, the, the counselor that helped him go to Cal lost his job right after, yeah. you know, and guess what? They didn't replace it, you know, right. gone. So it's great, the idea of moving counseling, but there's no, but we're losing all of our counselors. Hi, I'm Donna Sheely. I'm on the faculty at UC Irvine, and I've been connected with the UC since the early 80s. I have my law degree and my PhD from UC Berkeley, and I've taught at UC Berkeley, UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, and now at Irvine. Um, my husband is a Latino who was a beneficiary of the Affirmative Action Program at UCLA back in the 
early 1970s. So I think I, I have a pretty good basis on which I speak, but I certainly realize that anecdote, the plural anecdote is not data. So I, I uh, couch that. First of all, I do want to take issue with this idea that we're having economic diversity at the UCs. We are losing our middle class at the UC, and I think that we need to pay attention to that. We've got all these great grants for lower income students. The higher income students can afford to pay can afford to pay, we're losing the middle, and we're losing the middle to places like a USC, like private universities that have this financial aid to give out. And I think that that is also affecting the racial diversity of the campus. Um, but in other ways, I sort of feel like where to start with the conversation. And I think that we're, what we have to do is we have to go back to the master plan. And we have to look at what was designed for this state for higher education, community college, the state universities, and the UCs when that was created. And we have gotten to a point where we have taxpayers that are not willing to pay to educate other people's children. And I think that we need to understand that that's where we are in California today. And we weren't there in the 1950s. In the 1950s, Californians believed that they were educating their own. And so what do we do? How can we start this conversation where what we really need is a new, new master plan? Well, Dow Myers would say that, you know, we've got to convince the electorate, because I think he would agree with you that we have an older electorate that's predominantly white, um, that very much may indeed feel the way that you've described. And so how do we communicate our, collect, our, our collective benefit that we have with each other, right? That, that when that older white voter wants to sell their house or is going to depend on uh, health care services, that the people that are going to sell, buy that house, if they're better educated, he's going to get a better price for that house. And so... Um, have I, I haven't even taken your class. See, I have a lot of um, Trojan friends in spite of being a, a proud Bruin. <laughs> you know, the other thing, I just want to, I, I want to make sure we point out that uh, knowledge is power. And one of the challenges that, the, the, that, that our underrepresented, uh, low-income, first-generation college students face is they don't have the advocates. They don't have um, individuals, mentors in their lives to help them uh, navigate the process. So, the, you, you know, it's sort of like they're running a, tr a, a track race, sort of trying to get over hurdles, and each hurdle has a label, you know, affordability, application fees, you know, testing, so on and so forth. And so it doesn't matter how many they get over, there's more to come. And so we have to reach out to them early. That's why I mentioned early academic outreach programs, because a part of that outreach is not only about academic preparation, but it's about empowering um, parents to understand the process, the student to understand the process, because even, even when students show AP potential, that means that they, their, their testing, maybe their PSAT and others, show that they have the potential to succeed in rigorous courses. Um, these students are not getting access to those courses. And so we have to empower families, the whole village of folks, to um, understand the process, which is why the, the um, uh, Sarah Turner and Carolyn Hoxby report that you um, referenced about getting information out to these students early is so important. And it did show um, very um, successful, some success, that, that if parents have this information, that they could do a better job advocating for their, for their students. And, and by no means are we saying that this process is simple, 
but we do have models of success. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a matter of a collective will to make a difference and to move these numbers. And we have to stay as focused on the issue when there's a crisis as when there is not a crisis. A part of the problem is our efforts are like waves. They're up and down, they're up and down. We have to consistently treat this as the most urgent problem facing America. Hi, good evening. Uh, my name is Daisy Hernandez, and I'm with Promesa Boa Heights. And one of the questions that came up earlier had to do with what are the models that are building um, that K through 12 and connection to higher education system. And I wanted to, to share uh, one of them, and then you know it also leads to uh, some questions or suggestions that I have, for, uh, questions for the panelists around some of the barriers that we're seeing. So in Boyle Heights, which is a, right across the bridge, a community on the east side of Los Angeles, we have a community of organizations, schools, parents, and students that are coming together to build a cradle to college pipeline, a community of opportunity for students from the time that they're born to the time that they graduate college. Uh, so we're doing this at the early learning level, elementary, middle school, high school. And one of the challenges that we're seeing in terms of the transition to higher education is um, the ability to really build meaningful partnerships with institutions of higher education in a way that goes beyond like a simple, uh, a single one-time program by really looking at what are the partnerships that can be built in terms of articulation agreements or during the admissions process or during the uh, transition process for, uh, for students. And then the second um, large issue that we're seeing is in terms of getting the systems of higher education to talk to each other. Because in our community, uh, we're not talking about like a straight road. Once students graduate from high school, those that do graduate, their, pipe, their um, transitions are very different. Some, many of them end up going to community college. Some of them end up going to Cal State uh, and then to uh, UCs and other institutions. And uh, one of the roadblocks that we're uh, seeing really impact a significant number of students in our community is that um, community colleges are not talking to the UCs. So in terms of having a, a smooth system in place where students can maneuver that system, it, it's been really hard. And then as a community, uh, the question that I have is, any suggestions that you have for building uh, those meaningful partnerships with institutions of higher education and then getting the institutions of higher education talking to each other so that we avoid some of the problems that then the students and the families are seeing on the ground level. We recently had this uh, commission on community colleges uh, and that was one of the key recommendations is strengthening the ties between two and four year institutions. Uh, having and in, in, in Florida and elsewhere, there are automatic transfers um, if you complete a certain number of uh, uh, credentials at the community college level, you automatically, uh, you don't have to apply, you're automatically into a, a paired institution. And that's very important. Right now, 81% of entering community college students say that they would eventually like to get a four-year degree. They realize that that four-year degree is really the ticket to the American dream. And after six years, only 12% achieve that goal. So we, we, there, there is so much more that we can be doing to strengthen community colleges, to give them adequate resources, but also to build the ties between two and four year institutions. Well, I would say what you're doing is exactly what you know would be great to see in every community. Um, Long Beach Promise has a really great model of collaboration between their Long Beach Unified School District, their community college, and Cal State Long Beach. Um, they 
share data, they meet regularly, um, they use data from the high school to determine placement in community college classes, which has uh, decreased the number of students that get placed in like remedial courses where they like never get out. Mm -hmm. um, and they've guaranteed, you know, um, admission to local Long Beach students to Cal State Long Beach if they meet the requirements. Um, they raise money, scholarship dollars, but they're constantly talking to each other and they work together. Um, as an organization, we're really proud that a few years ago we passed pretty historic transfer reform legislation to address the community college transfer issue in our own state, making sure that students do know what they need to do and that they can actually earn an associate degree while they're meeting the transfer requirements. We have that um, legislation was passed um, to create that associate degree for transfer, but it's only between community colleges and the Cal States. Super significant, because that's where most of the students are, but we can't get the University of California to come to the table because every UC wants to have their own articulation agreements. And so good luck figuring out the maze of how you get where, right? But so I would say my solution is that the state needs to be more aggressive at telling higher education what we expect from them. And then we should be funding them to collaborate. And we should have an expectation that they should be talking to K-12 and to each other. And we don't. Thank you so much. We'll see you at the reception upstairs. <laughs>